Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. Neil, today I thought we were going to talk about Germany, country in Central Europe. Yeah. Ah, yes. And a nuclear-free country. I well, believe. now nuclear-free because on Sunday Germany shut down the last three of its nuclear reactors at three plants: one called Issar, one called Neckar-Westheim, and the third Emsland. And these were three of the most modern reactors that they had, built in the late 1980s and generally regarded as some of the world's most efficient in terms of their output. So Germany has now joined Italy as one of the few countries in the world that has had nuclear power, which has completely scrapped it. And they're doing it at an extremely odd moment, because not only is much of Europe and Asia thinking of building new reactors because of a desire to reduce carbon emissions, and it's worth pointing out that the government that's actually doing this in Germany contains the Green Party, which is in fact in charge of the energy portfolio. But also because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's made Europe think about cutting off its dependence on Russian gas. Germany was very dependent. And so it makes their energy less secure. It's a demonstration of how politics trumps science. Well, we'll come to that. But yes, I think you might be right. Anyway, we're joined today to talk about this by Mark Nelson, founder of Radiant Energy Group, a consultancy specialising in energy transition issues, who I think has spent quite a lot of time travelling around Europe, particularly in Germany, looking at uh, this policy. So welcome, Mark. Thank you very much, Jonathan. I have to add a little correction. Although Germany no longer has any of the cheap, abundant nuclear electricity that goes around the clock at the cheapest prices for firm power in Europe, it still has an identical amount of nuclear waste and is still protected by the identical nuclear weapons that have guaranteed its security since the uh, end of World War II, basically. Okay. So it's only it's only anti-nuclear in the generally agreed upon benefits, yep. not on the things that a lot of Germans dislike. Yeah, and also I think if one actually looks at where the Germans buy their power from, they're still purchasing quite a lot of electricity that comes out of nuclear reactors from one place or another around Europe. Even though I, I like to think I understand a little bit of electricity markets, they're so fiendishly complicated that the people who run them don't understand them. The people who set them up don't understand them. The people who have to operate power plants in them don't understand them. And traders, I've talked to so many traders, they don't understand the markets. They only have to survive day to day and make a profit. Yeah. Well, before we come on to energy markets, we we should talk a bit about Germany and why they've taken this bizarre decision. I mean, are they absolutely mad? Well, so German public has already come around, but something very unlucky happened. There was a sort of Star-crossed alignment. (laughs) Star-crossed lovers between the uh, Greens and (laughs) the uh, main party. But here's the thing. (laughs) 2020 destroyed energy demand. People were paying to dispose of oil in parts of the world. People were paying to dispose of electricity all over the world. You couldn't get rid of your energy supplies. That's when elections returned powerful results for Greens. In this case, the Green Party said, we demand energy above all, and they were able to act as a kingmaker in the, in the political alignment. Same thing happened in Belgium. Green parties have a single demand. They need the energy portfolio and they need to, need to take control of it. 
the reason is there's only one straight through policy in Green Party history. One, destroy nuclear energy. Everything else is optional. They'll work with anyone across the spectrum. They'll work on any policy as long as they can destroy the foundation of their host nations powerfully. Now, I just wanted to pick up one thing. You mentioned Belgium there. Belgium, you're correct to say that Belgium also had a, a government which was a coalition involving the Greens. And the Greens have had a long-standing demand in Belgium to remove nuclear power. Belgium kind of started down this route, but pulled back and hasn't completely exited. The other thing I just wanted to touch on before we get on to the discussion is, obviously, this policy, the phase-out, was not actually invented, the, the one that was finally implemented by the Greens. It was invented by Angela Merkel in response to the Fukushima accident. Can I push back a little yeah. bit and say that... Angela Merkel had pushed back on the nuclear phase-out, had pushed it backwards in 2010 and then reversed herself in 2011. Whatever her personal feelings, it certainly helped her party stay in power to do so. And she pushed it out past when she eventually was going to retire. So it's uh, she washes her hands of Germany and leaves it in a fairly vulnerable and disreputable position across Europe, unfortunately. I'm astonished, really, that the purblind nature of shutting these nuclear generators down, as you say, still got the same problem with the waste, which is a major uh, handicap for nuclear power. That's not going to go away. And they are now beholden to the sort of high cost energy that we are struggling with in this country. And to top it all, of course, they are burning a lot more coal than they were. And coal, as we all know, is the largest producer of CO2. So it seems to me that they've got the worst of all possible worlds. Maybe, if I can put a word in for the UK having a slightly worse possible world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) The UK (laughs) went all out cancelling nuclear plans and going towards natural gas about 25 years ago or so, the so-called dash for gas. Mm -hmm. As they increased gas usage substantially with gas power plants across the country, moving away from the old coal stations built by the the coal board and the nuclear plans that were being put into place in late Thatcher times, Mm -hmm. production of North Sea gas was going up too. So the UK was radically increasing gas usage while having radical amounts of gas to use and still having enough for export. Then you started destroying your options away from gas, only had gas, but then your production crashed. So you became dependent on imported LNG prices for a lot of your balancing of your market. And your nuclear plants are the only ones on planet Earth that have degradation that cannot be fixed. The only ones, 10 or 11 reactors out of the 450 active reactors in the world, only British reactors must shut and struggle to get their licensing done each year or two to stay on. So combined with that, you took five or six extra years monkeying around before you started on your giant construction project over at Hinkley Point C to build two colossal new reactors that will essentially double the nuclear generation that's on the grid now, but it'll be almost all of it when it comes on. And then Germany, by committing to a natural gas future based on Russian pipeline gas, they were more or less removing themselves from the competition for liquefied natural gas supplies in Britain, meaning their demand was not leading to investment that would have increased enough for everybody today. Now they're rapidly building import terminals. And I have to ask both you gentlemen, do you think Brits can outbid Germany for natural gas on the global markets? Do you think so? I don't know. Well, I think we have to take the lash for some of what uh, Mark has said. It's certainly true that 
the gas-cooled reactors that we built in the 70s and 80s, I guess, were not a brilliant design from many, many standpoints, but uh, they are indeed running out of life because the way the reactor was built, which is around a sort of carbon core, has a limited life. And those lives are now ending rather more quickly than people hoped. And I think it's absolutely fair to say that there is this unavoidable capacity gap now between the closure of the gas-cooled stations, which will all really be done by the late 2020s, and when the first new stations, the Hinkley Point, come into operation. And I have to say, looking at the record of the French reactor, which is the design that's been chosen for Hinkley Point, you might think it's hopeful that it will (laughs) come sometime in the early 2030s. In terms of Britain's reliance on liquid natural gas, well, I suppose the only the only good thing is we need a lot less of it than the Germans do because at present we have a lot less industry than they do. Well, I think that by the time the, the bidding war starts, which I suspect you're right that it will be, we will get our share, but the cost will be essentially dictated by what the Germans will pay because it's a bigger economy, it's a more powerful economy. By then, I was going to say, they'll have lost their manufacturing crown to various countries in the Far East who will be able to and, do it. And USA. USA is a, one of the great gas producers of the world. Why would you stay in Germany when you can move Germans, hopefully if we loosen our visas, move Germans and the factories straight to a city like Chicago with access to the gas and oil fields of the the Midwest and the Great Plains states, along with the biggest concentration of nuclear plants in one little urban area in the US, in my opinion, outside of Chicago. That's an advertisement. I'm yeah, no, I know you're advertising. But, but, but I think regrettably, from the European perspective, that is actually already happening with BASF, for example, big German chemical company deciding that its future investments will be in the States rather than Europe. And I think it is a fundamental problem. I think if you look at the world where we are now, you'd say America has cheap energy, Asia has cheap labor, Europe has cheap nothing. And that is a problem. So it's not just Britain v Germany in terms of bidding for supplies of gas and what have you. It's Britain and Germany against and Europe against the rest of the world. If you go right back in time, you find in the 1950s, after the Second World War, one of the reasons why Europe was so keen to get into nuclear energy and created Euratom was the fact that they felt that they did not have sufficient natural fossil fuel resources to be competitive in the world economy and to rebuild their economies after World War II. And we have now somehow gone full circle to a situation where Europe is once again embracing fossil fuel poverty and uh, has no real nuclear energy to compensate for that. And here's the crazy thing. Because of the way electricity markets work, Germany turning off nuclear doesn't necessarily increase the chance of blackouts in Germany, but it does increase it in countries that have a weaker economic situation and weaker fossil fuel fleets. So this is another thing that differentiates Britain and Germany. While Germany was doing all these climate change conferences and pushing their anti-nuclear position around the world and their coal phase out, and they're one of the other centers of finance in Europe, they didn't blow up their coal plants. That was Brits, you guys went on TV in front of coal plants and you had the big like hard hack and and the goofy safety glasses and you did the big plunger and you blew up your coal plants. Now, they were old. 
they were crumbling. Like this, these were really old. They couldn't get financing to continue and it was against carbon plans. But Germany somehow stopped and resisted the temptation to do that. And now they're able to keep their whole coal fleet essentially forever because all they have to say is, well, this year we weren't able to face it out. Well, next year we weren't able to face it out. That was the central bargain. I think that the coal industry basically allied with greens and so on to make sure that nuclear went first, which means that the value of the services they offer have just increased immeasurably. So, Neil, cock up or conspiracy in Germany? Do not put down to conspiracy what can be explained by, by total cock up. Cock up. <laughs> it's certainly cock up here. I yeah. didn't think it was any real conspiracy. But it's interesting, though, to talk a little bit about the Green Party and the way that, I mean, clearly these policies, as you say, were authored by the Green movement, which started politically in Germany in the 1970s, late 70s. Green parties have always been a relatively low in most countries minority, but have had a disproportionate power, precisely because they have advocated a very small number of strongly held policies, of which this is probably the central one. You can call it the tyranny of the incalcitrant minority. I've seen this written by, say, Nassim Tlaib points it out, some of his works, that a tiny minority mm. that will absolutely not accept other options, mm. but only on one specific issue, ends up having dominating influence on total systems. But there are two questions, Ron. One is really why the political systems in Europe have not been able to reject this, given the fact that it is relatively a minority view in most countries. And as you said at the beginning, in Germany, a majority of people, I think now, for all the historic concern about nuclear power, certainly don't think you should be switching off their reactors. So why has the political system not been able to resist this? And also, why have green parties who have confronted with these terrible realities that basically they are going to become salesmen for the coal industry, not thought again about their own political priorities and how to achieve them? So two different questions. Let yeah. me go with the first one. Okay. How could this happen? Here's a big one. Electricity's totally abstract. <laughs> Until it's not there. It's, I, I don't know. It's too complicated as a system. Almost nobody involved anywhere in the world that I know of has an engineering degree or understands the grid. Heck, I hear from experienced linemen with deep learning and the active control, including saving their own lives, working on transmission lines. Electrical engineering professors themselves struggle to understand the grid. So in some ways, it's an intractably abstract system until the blackouts actually start. Okay, so, you, so you've answered my first question, which is abstract until it's absent. And fundamentally, therefore, the public, because they don't really understand it, don't get het up about it until they have to pay a lot more money for and it. And the experts don't understand it. Okay, so that's question number one. But what about the question of why green politicians prefer to reopen lignite mines than keep nuclear reactors going? So I'm going to answer this at two levels of focus. One is on the German soul, dare okay. I say that, around mm, lignite German mines. My God, we're getting really, odd, going, going, getting oh, really philosophical dear. here. Yeah, metaphysics. <laughs> uh, I've spent a lot of time in Germany, gentlemen. <laughs> uh, exploring this. This okay. better be... The, call it the green industrial complex, right. shall we say. So this is so a global green industrial elite. complex on one hand, mm. the German soul and the lignite mining regions on the other. Nuclear is considered by a lot of, say, older Germans as not part of the homeland, not part of the fatherland, not part of our shared 
national German soil heritage. And we can probably get too creepy with it. So we'll move move on on. to the (laughs) urban elites. You have in several countries, really tight social circles of politicians who come into power and exercise power together. In the turn of the century, say 2000, 2001, 2003, you have Gerhard Schröder, a chancellor who was building a Russian gas addicted Germany, which again, he spent 20 years or more building that system. So you're saying that basically it was a pro-Russian agenda, which the Greens were part of or just gulled by? Russia is the greatest constructor of exported nuclear reactors in the world. They have the majority of the world's export projects themselves that they're building now, even after the Ukraine war started. So like Russia was best at gas Mm -hmm. and best at nuclear. So you really had to choose. Were you going to get the Rosatom side of the Kremlin or were you going to get the Gazprom side of the Kremlin? Germany rejected all nuclear, so they weren't going to go for the nuclear side, which at least leaves you with an independent power plant you can keep operating even at war. Even at war, Ukraine has been able to operate and fuel Russian-built, Russian-serviced nuclear plants. It's astonishing. Whereas Germany paid for that gas pipeline, basically built it itself, bought gas through it, and it still got shut down and then blown up by somebody turning off the gas flow immediately. They had nothing. They were left with nothing because they chose the Gazprom side of the Kremlin. My take on it, for what it's worth, is that there is no doubt a lot of what you say in the case of Germany, but it does seem to me that the basic problem that the Greens have, and I noticed this particularly in Belgium, whereas, as you observe, they also had a similar policy of phase-out I think there's a fundamental problem. It's a bit like um, the Scottish nationalists giving up on an independent Scotland. It's so central to the identity of the Green Party, this policy agenda, that to say, actually, we don't really believe in this, even if you could construct an alternative policy that was equally green, it sort of rips the soul out of what they're selling. I think that is one of the reasons why they are trapped, even in this sort of cognitive fog that they've now descended into because of what's been going on around the world. But the other thing is, obviously, we talked a bit about Germany. Germany, fortunately, to some extent, is an outlier in Europe in terms of what they've decided to do. Most countries are actually doing the opposite, which is that they are trying where they can to extend the lives of their reactors in certain parts of Europe, certainly in the East, where they were very dependent on Russia, but a lot less willingly than Germany. They are trying to start investing in nuclear reactors, but not Russian ones. Where do you see things more broadly? Isn't Germany a bit of an outlier? Yes. So Germany is absolutely an outlier, verging on outcast, especially with Belgium. I heard a, a German himself call this uh, the coalition of dwarves, which I thought was fairly insulting. But if a German a said it, there it dwarves. is, which is Germany, <laughs> Belgium, Luxembourg, a few really tiny countries with very small economies. So Germany had this coalition. Even that is breaking a bit with Belgium saying they need to keep nuclear plants on. Let's see if they manage it. They can manage all sorts of mismanagement in Belgium. So I'm watching carefully to see if they keep it. But Germany is really becoming a pariah state, a burden on the grids of Europe. You're a bit of a skeptic about new nuclear, aren't you, Neil? You think it's going to be too expensive. Well, I'm afraid I am. Not that I'm against nuclear in principle. I think it's a very powerful and indeed hugely necessary part of the mix. My problem with it is that it seems to me to be a race between improving technology on the one hand 
and rising health and safety restraints on the other so that the that the cost of building the plants goes up rather than down because each generation of plant has to jump through higher hurdles than its predecessor as long as that goes on i don't think that nuclear power will do anything other than be a huge burden on the state and we're seeing this with Hinkley Point. Remember that Hinkley Point C is not a burden on the British state. That plant's owned by other people. It's a national plant, just not the nation that's hosted it. Yeah, no, I'm well aware of the deal. Let us hope that the French will not uh, try and renegotiate it. First of all, very reasonable view and something that certainly seemed where the world was headed in the 80s and 90s. However, I would like to offer a slightly alternative way out that we're already starting to see at the otherwise disastrous Vogel Project in Georgia. The project in Georgia had almost no effects from ratcheting regulation, meaning the system that came out of the chaos of the 80s worked as intended. Whenever the inexperienced constructors at Vogel made a giant error, the NRC was there immediately ready to respond as practically as possible, as rapidly as possible, allowing major deviances from the design brief in order to allow the builders not to have to drill stuff out or not to have to redo They just had to redo the calculations because they changed the design they said they were going to build. So just to jump in, (laughs) just to jump in there so that the listener knows what's going on. Vogel is a large nuclear plant in Georgia, in the southern part of the United States, which is, I think, the first, virtually the first new order of a nuclear reactor by an American utility since the 1970s. But sorry, you're yeah. saying okay. that, that, that when no. they discovered that it hadn't been built to spec, rather than saying you've got to do it again, they changed the spec. They let the engineers who designed <laughs> the specs in the first place apply to show that the way they'd accidentally done it wrong because of miscommunications and inexperience with the constructors would still be good enough. And those arguments were almost always accepted. Uh, well, that's an encouraging, I fear. I don't see it happening in the UK. I mean, we are so risk-averse in this country that I cannot see an equivalent in the UK allowing it because the papers would be screaming, compromising over safety. Neil, the UK has perhaps the best example of crumbly old reactors working extremely tightly with your best engineers in your whole country some of the best regulators, as far as I've heard. And the regulators, the owners of the nuclear plants, the operators of the plants are working together in tight harmony, the way I've heard it described on my last visit only a few weeks ago, to make sure that if there's a case for extending by another year, another year, another year, your reactors, the only ones in the world that have this ticking lifespan problem, keep operating to keep Brits alive under the coming winters. So Germany, they've shut down all their reactors hasn't happened very often. Italy was the only other one I can think of. Maybe there are a few others. Lithuania. Lithuania went from 95% nuclear they electricity were, They were to all 0%. Chernobyl-style reactors, I think. So but they they're had still a, they Chernobyl had a second reactors e- only a few miles away, powering <laughs> St. Petersburg. They're right across the border from Estonia. They're not gone. <laughs> okay. So they showed a good degree of regulatory flexibility to a nuclear power plant exploding yeah. all over the countryside. Basically, Germany, Lithuania, Italy have all done it. Are you prepared had to say, put your cards on the table and say you don't think any other countries will exit? We have two phase-out policies that are effectively still kind of on the books. That's uh, Spain and Belgium. You think they'll both change their minds 
in the end. Yeah. So the next elections post the abundant energy year that made it seem easy to people who have no understanding even of the units used to count energy. Once that gets cleared up here in the next few years, we're likely to see a different approach. So Neil, that means that from your perspective, it's time you set up the Brown Party, the coal party. Yeah, absolutely. To, to set up a single issue, bring back deep mining to Britain. Yeah, because after all, that's all we've got. We may be able to build about one nuclear power station every decade, but it's nothing like enough. The idea that we can carry on with windmills and sunshine is a complete delusion on that radiant note (laughs) that was a long time in finance with jonathan ford and neil collins production and editing by nick hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news if you enjoyed the show please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us